0: Today is sponsored by the Department of History, the Department of Economics, the Mercant Center, and the Institute for Japanese Studies. And it's a considerable pleasure for me to introduce a longtime friend and close colleague, Professor Sheldon Mark Guerin from Princeton University. Shell is a native of Minnesota. He did his undergraduate degree at the University of Minnesota, master's degree at Harvard, and Yale PhD. After which, he taught briefly at Pomona College and then went to Princeton, where he's been ever since. Uh, Shell is probably the leading historian of the modern Japanese state and of state-society relations in the Japanese context. In 2003, he published an important essay on the state and civil society in Japan. This, of course, was preceded by his book in 1987 on the state and labor in modern Japan, which won the John King Fairbank Prize of the American Historical Association. In 1997, he published Molding Japanese Minds, the State in Everyday Life, And as you can see from the topic of today's presentation, he's now studying the history of savings, not only within the Japanese context, but in a very broad international frame of reference. Since the title of the talk is on the screen, I'm not going to bother to read it to you, but it's a pleasure to welcome Shell to Ohio State University. Well, thank you very
1: much, Jim. Uh, Can you hear me? I'm not sure if the mic is... It's okay? Okay, great. Uh, well, I want to thank the Mershon Center. I certainly want to thank my friend Jim uh, and I, I guess the long list of sponsors on this uh, Department of Economics, Department of History Institute of Japanese Studies. OK. And hopefully I will satisfy all the constituencies, although, frankly, I worry most about the economists. <laughs> you will see that I am a historian by training, as Jim said, a historian of Japan. Uh, what I've tried to do in this present project, uh, which is a, really a fairly global comparative transnational project, is I've looked at several other cases, um, not only Japan, but uh, cases in Europe, uh, the United States, uh, East and Southeast Asia. Uh, I was fortunate to somehow convince the Japanese government agency uh, to give me a grant that would allow me to spend uh, summer in Europe Uh, in hell holes like Paris and Rome and London and Brussels and and, and, and if I knew you better I probably would have titled the talk uh, Writing a Comparative History of Thrift or How I Spent My Summer Vacation. Um, But I did uh, what I I do want to make clear is as a historian it was important to me uh, to do archival research on each one of the cases and and to visit each one of the cases And and I'm very happy I did because The things that you're going to see that I'm looking at in many respects are quite obscure in uh, historiography and there is not an active scholarship, not only in Japan, but in most societies about thrift. And and that brings me to a topic that in some ways has become uh, surprisingly timely, the topic of saving. Uh, Saving and thrift have not exactly been sexy topics, uh, either in historiography. Uh, or in public policy in the United States in particular, where the emphasis in recent decades has been very much on promoting consumption, uh, not thrift. And yet suddenly, uh, only in the last few weeks, has sex uh, saving become a timely uh, topic. And no matter how one feels about the privatization of Social Security, I'm not going to do a poll here, but however one feels, uh, both sides seem to agree uh, that Americans save far too little uh, for the future. Uh, and if one was going to do this uh, statistically and look at personal savings rates, according to the Department of Commerce in the United States, for the last few months, you would have seen the most recent figure, uh, November 2004, the personal savings rate is 0.3%, uh, and uh, for many months in the last five or six years, it has indeed Uh, been around zero, sometimes even negative, Uh, rose briefly uh, a couple of years ago, but now it's sort of back to what we consider normal American levels. Uh, By contrast, it's well known uh, that the Japanese and other East Asians uh, save a whole lot, Uh, that they have been quite thrifty uh, in recent decades. Uh, The Japanese in particular, the post-war period since 1945, uh, at its peak in the mid-1970s, Uh, Japanese household savings rates, the equivalent to personal savings rates, uh, were as much as 23% of uh, disposable household income. Uh, It has come down uh, since that. Uh, to some extent, uh, and recently it's actually come down quite a bit just in the last few years, as you're going to see, Uh, but nonetheless, uh, as an aggregate for the post-war period, it has been noticeably high, high in the world, one of the highest in the world, uh, and certainly very high vis-a-vis the United States. We know that. What's less well-known is that continental Europeans have also had long histories of high savings uh, and a promoting thrift. And let me just show you. Uh, this is uh, um, a table of, of household savings rates. Uh, this was taken by, uh, from uh, the work, recent work of uh, an economist of Japan, Charles Horioka, who has worked a lot on saving. Uh, these are savings rates that for the economists and probably for no one else, uh, these came from the OEC uh, data, uh, but uh, Professor Horioka uh, then uh, really tried to reconcile a lot of the disparities in the comparisons of rates, uh, taking some that were gross household savings rates uh, and factoring them in. Uh, reconfiguring them as net household savings rates. And this is what he's come up with as uh, the most accurate comparison that he could do, and I don't think anybody could do it better at this point. Uh, And what you see is uh, that, yes, uh, the Japanese vis-a-vis the United States appear to be uh, uniquely uh, high in terms of savings rates until uh, one starts looking at the European continents, uh, particularly the Italians, uh, who make the Japanese look very profligate uh, for many of the years. Uh, and uh, today you'll see the Japanese rate in the last few years, for various uh, reasons I'm not really going to go into, has come down appreciably, mainly because of, of, of stagnant and declining um, income in Japan, which has been under recession uh, for, for more than a decade. Uh, but even uh, today, uh, while the Japanese rates are not so high, you can see the French, the Germans, the Italians have been consistently high. This would apply to Belgians, Dutch and others. Uh, and what, what I think is significant here is uh, that the continental Europeans, Europeans in general, have had long histories of promoting thrift, long histories of inculcating savings habits and wh- whatever uh, the factor is, the fact is, that savings rates have been also at sort of Japanese levels uh, during much of this time. I mean, what all this brings up is something that is not talked about much in the United States, but I I think the rest of us kind of know this, uh, that when you really start looking at what nations are unique, um, the Americans look awfully unique in all sorts of ways. I mean, that's where you tend to see a lot of the exceptionalism. Uh, And and I'm going to briefly talk about American exceptionalism toward the end of the talk. Uh, Well, how do we explain these variations uh, in savings? And uh, this is a very complex topic and one can approach this from all sorts of ways. Uh, Economists have looked at various factors in in explaining cross-national variation. Uh, I'm not going to attempt to compete with the economists on this, Uh, but what I will say is that the one factor that economists tend to have consistently left out in explaining differences in saving uh, is the historical role of institutions, of states, of various social groups uh, in encouraging uh, habits of saving, which often become enduring. Uh, habits of saving uh, that, will, that will remain under different conditions. That, in other words, this habit of saving and whether it is encouraged by institutions, states, social reform groups can be very important from society to society. And this really introduces uh, what we're going to be looking at today, which is how states, groups, reformers have attempted to inculcate habits of thrift uh, over the last 200 years. And the last 200 years, as you're going to see, is a significant uh, chronological unit because beginning sometime around the late 18th century, around 1800, uh, from Europe and then eventually to Japan in the late 19th century. Uh, States and societies became very interested in aggressively trying to mold habits of thrift, cultures of thrift uh, by means of various programs. Uh, And you're going to hear about them today, things like postal savings, savings at the post office, moral education, school savings programs, and of course, war savings campaigns, particularly in the two world wars. And what's interesting is that when you go from nation to nation in the last 200 years, uh, you see some distinct similarities in these these programs and these similarities are not a coincidence. And this really brings me to another one of my themes today. There is a, a very pronounced transnational diffusion of knowledge about nation building, about character building. Uh, of which this this inculcation of savings is simply one part. We could look at all sorts of other things, uh, but the fact these societies are doing it, they're actually learning actively from each other. And I'm very interested in the process of how they find out about what other places are doing and why they adopt what they do. And I think there's a certain utility in, in focusing on a transnational diffusion of knowledge, not simply in the... Uh, the arena of saving. Uh, But in all sorts of historical areas or areas of of political development, um, I think one learns a lot more than one does when one concentrates so much on simply a national history. And and there are two things I'm proposing today that that at least I have learned. One, by looking at a transnational diffusion of, of, of learning, for those of us who are in Japanese studies. Uh, This is pretty subversive to almost everything the field is built on, which is on the particularity, the difference of Japan. Uh, You ask most Japanese, you ask most scholars of Japan, they will use words like unique, exceptional, distinctive to talk about Japan. They will talk about the tremendous influence of Japanese traditions. Um, this can be broadened out, not just for Japan, but for many Asian societies. You get the whole discourse of Asian values. Asians are like this. They're thrifty by nature. They're diligent. They're honest. There's all sorts of discourses that go into this. What I hope that my study sheds some light on is that a lot of the things that we think about as modern Japan today, you know, particularly in this instance, you know, high savings, thrift, this sort of thing, in many ways, these discourses, while they owe something to tradition, the actual institutions, the programs, the politics that go behind this sort of character development are things that in many cases came from the world of 19th century Europe, uh, which was similarly obsessed with creating patriotic, hardworking, uh, and Uh, uh, courageous uh, citizens who would offer themselves in in battle. So, I mean, in a sense, military conscription and also mobilizing one's economic behavior are part and parcel of a nation building process that Japan encountered in a very frontal way in the late 19th century when it became a modern nation state. And I'll talk more about that. The other, um, I think, useful thing about a transnational approach, and this goes well beyond Japan, is while we do understand that the Japanese have been great emulators in the modern world, we forget that all the modern societies have actually been great emulators, including sometimes even our own country. Uh, But that Western societies have actively looked at each other, and of course, this is easiest to do in Europe where they're they're basically lying on top of each other. They they look at what each other does, that models, uh, not only in the modern world, but certainly in the early modern world, have been extremely important learning best practice, we would call it today, Uh, and in a sense, by starting with Japan, but by looking at this whole process, I think we get insights into this, and and again, we'll be talking a lot about this in the context today. Well, um, fortunately, I will not be simply talking. Uh, This is an illustrated talk, and I have uh, tried to illustrate it mainly by, by showing you savings campaign posters from around the world and talking about similar themes. Before I get to that, though, let me just sketch in um, periodization of the talk today, since it, it does really cover the last 200 years. Now, the first phase of this promotion of thrift in an organized way, and it was called organizing thrift, starts in the late 18th century. Uh, it comes out of things like the Enlightenment, uh, the beginnings of national power, the mobilization of the citizenry. Um, it, you see it particularly uh, in terms of the encouragement of thrift in, in terms of a new institution called the Savings Bank. In the late 18th and early 19th century, like wildfire, social reformers, civic authorities around Europe and also in North America uh, begin to establish savings banks. The principle of Savings Bank is it's a non-profit institution. It's not a profit-making commercial bank. It's a non-profit Um, financial institution that focuses on taking in very small amounts of saving that uh, the poor, the working poor, the working classes had been excluded from financial institutions before the 19th century in most places because the banks, merchant bankers and others didn't want to take um, the small savings of people. It wasn't worth it. These savings banks were social institutions. They were moral institutions. They were designed to encourage habits of thrift. They were not designed to make money. They were not designed to mobilize capital. They were designed to bring order to society. It was, in many ways, in the European countries, uh, it came out of lots of different uh, Uh, intellectual movements to be sure and political, uh, but it had to do with seeing the ordinary person in a new way. That what the ordinary person did in their life uh, became important. It became important to societies, it became important to national power. You wanted an orderly society, a society without crime, a society where poor people did not become a major burden on poor relief in particular. So the idea behind a lot of this was to encourage inculcate patterns of self-help, self-reliance, to also give the working poor incentives uh, at the time it was thought to stay within the system, not to become revolutionary, certainly as the 19th century goes on. And you have a big industrial working class and urbanization. So fear of working class revolution, as English uh, reformers put it in the early 19th century, by having the working poor save in these savings banks, uh, you were giving them, and the term was, a stake in the country. Uh, they would feel part of the order, but even more than that, their money would now be tied up in the state. because when you save in the savings bank in England or France or other places, that money went directly to a trust fund managed by the national treasuries. So the idea was you get the working class, and that's going to be pretty hard for them to throw bombs at the state when it's going to hurt their saving. And so this is, this is actually where the stakeholder society comes from. This is where the concept actually of stakeholding comes from. Um, well, there was also a gender dimension. You were appealing not only to the working poor, but you were work- appealing to lots of females, uh, particularly domestics who went to cities, uh, to married women. Uh, this is a poster from the 1850s in Britain. Uh, comfort and independence in old age, and the the little inscription underneath. Uh, It was my industry, the man, but her saving. Already you're starting to see sort of a gender differentiation. The men may be the producers, but at least the sort of Victorian ideal was the woman, the household manager, uh, would be uh, the manager of financial assets and of planning. Well, that's a savings bank. Phase, and that is about roughly from about the 1790s to about 1850. Um, but from that, we move into the latter half of the 19th century. And there the emphasis is not no longer sort of these private communal philanthropic institutions, but its states actually getting into the role of molding habits of thrift of, of their citizenry. Uh, and this happens in various ways. One way it happens. And through the phenomenon of school savings, uh, which is, again, the last few weeks only in America, sort of coming back, how do we get children to save? Various American politicians have come up with things. This is nothing new. This is a 19th century phenomenon, particularly the latter half of the 19th century, where particularly countries with centralized educational systems, Belgians, French, and others, uh, pioneered the idea of school savings. Uh, Having children's banks, this is one from Australia in the 1930s, these were all over uh, the modern world, advanced capitalist countries by the early 20th century, sort of teaching these habits young, but using the centralized educational system to do that. Uh, But more than school savings, the way that states most actively intervened in the process of promoting thrift it was through an institution that Americans know very little about because we barely had one. That was called the Post Office Savings Bank, or Postal Savings. Um, this, The first Post Office Savings Banks were founded by the British in 1861. This was seen as a genuine innovation by social reformers at the time, not only in Britain, uh, but all over uh, the Western world at the time. It was seen as an answer to the inaccessibility of financial institutions in smaller towns and countrysides. You could only have so many savings banks. You needed philanthropists. There were areas that didn't have them. Also savings banks were often unsafe. they, there was embezzlement, they often couldn't pay out, uh, there were runs on savings banks. So the idea behind the British Post Office Savings Bank was to create a safe, nationally guaranteed, highly accessible institution that would be in every post office of the realm so that you nobody would be very far away from a post office. Well, this idea of post office savings um, was an idea that, that really took in Europe. Uh, that within a few years it spread all over the place just as savings banks had done. It seemed to be one answer to the problem of the rise of in industrial working class and one more uh, effective means of, of this idea of self-reliance and inculcating on a mass scale. Uh, it spread uh, to Belgium within about four years. They also had a huge system and in the next 1870s, 1880s spread to Italy, Netherlands, France, Austria, Sweden. Uh, a whole host of countries spread to Canada, spread to the British Commonwealth. Interestingly enough, one of the very first places that it spread to was Japan. Japan comes into the modern world in 1868 with the Meiji Restoration. Leaders of Japan, very resourceful, very knowledgeable types, given, given where they had come from, that they had been in isolation before that, set about to discover the the sources of Western might. They looked at all sorts of institutions. Sometimes it was very haphazard. They got interested in the British post office because to be a modern country was to have a postal system and one that was integrated into an international postal system. And while they, one guy was sent to London, he was stumbling around looking at the post office and he heard about this new innovation of postal savings. Not knowing a whole lot about it, he thought, well, it goes with the part and parcel, one might say, <laughs> the postal savings, the post office savings. Uh, and he, and he- He brings it back. And in 1875, Japan becomes the third country in the world to adopt the the postal savings system after Britain, Belgium, and then Japan, even before the other European countries. Uh, And this is important because the Japanese go actually beyond the British system. The British system really was designed as a social policy to inculcate thrift in people because it was good for them, it was good for social order, it was good for social welfare. But the British system had not been a system for mobilizing the financial resources of the country. The British had tons of commercial banks and other ways of raising capital. Um, They were not interested in taking small savings and and using it in a strategic way uh, for industrialization and other sources of capital. The Japanese, however, being... Uh, really at the very first stages of modernization, did need a lot of capital. They did not have a commercial banking sector. They had come out of an early modern system that did really not have European-style commercial banking. And within about 10 years of its formation, by the mid-1880s, Japanese financial bureaucrats realized that they could use the small savings of their people not simply to inculcate thrift, uh, but to actually channel it uh, for financial mobilization, for industrialization, to finance infrastructure in the countryside and in the cities, and then eventually in uh, the Japanese Empire by the 1890s and uh, the early 20th century. And so in a sense, they went one step beyond the British. Uh, they created a system that actually they borrowed from the French of having all of the money from postal savings going into a centrally managed trust fund called the Deposit Bureau that was managed by the Ministry of Finance. This was actually a carbon copy of what the French had. The French called theirs the Caisse de dépôt. The Japanese was the Deposit Bureau. You don't have to be very expert in either language to understand that this is basically the same sort of model. Uh, And like the French who were also using it for agricultural and industrial development in a fairly strategic way, the Japanese took that, took it even further, uh, and it became a major uh, uh, source of financing both industrialization but also imperial expansion. Well, This brings us to the next phase in the early 20th century. We we go from simply state-sponsored postal savings to what you could call national savings. And this really comes about as all of the nations that participated in these postal savings system realized that small savings of the people actually became bigger and bigger and bigger savings as the late 19th century went on. And in Britain, France, certainly in Japan and others, Financial officials discovered they had a big pot of money that they hadn't really paid much attention to before and a pot of money that, for the most part, the um, governments were managing rather actively, that these pots of money could be used to prosecute wars uh, and real military strength. They could be used directly to finance the nation state. Interestingly enough, um, the first country in the early 20th century to discovered that was the Japanese again the Russo-Japanese War. It was a a very total war for its time, even though it lasted only about a year, 1904 to 5. Japanese used it, and it is noteworthy that at the time, uh, in British opinion, uh, from conservatives to Fabian socialists to liberals like Lloyd George, they got very excited about the Japanese victory over the Russians in 1905. They were very excited about actively learning from Japanese models of national power because the British were feeling a little demoralized after the Boer War and they saw Germany creeping up on them very fast. Uh, The idea of learning from... Japan, which was actually their ally after 1902, the uh, Anglo-Japanese Alliance, became very inviting. There were all sorts of books about Great Japan, a study in national efficiency that came out in Britain around 1905, 1906. And a lot of them talked about the mobilization of human resources in Japan, including savings campaigns. Now, in World War I, the British actually leapfrog uh, the Japanese and others. World War I, everybody expected liberal Britain to be very stodgy in their mobilization. They expected Germans and others to be much more effective um, because they were much more autocratic. Uh, to the surprise of most people at the time, the British very quickly established the most efficient system of wartime mobilization in World War I, and as part of this, mobilizing labor resources, but they also realized that to prosecute a long-term war like World War I, they would need very active national savings mobilization. In 1916, the British government set up something called the National Savings Committee, started the National Savings Movement, they founded savings associations at the local level in neighborhoods and workplaces and schools. Uh, and they highly mobilized themselves in a way that we don't necessarily think of in liberal societies. But it was very hierarchical from the top to the bottom. But a system, very effective system of national mobilization. Once again, as is true in this sort of transnational systems of learning, It was the Japanese and others who then saw the British model being very effective in national mobilization. In the 1920s, the Japanese then incorporated a lot of parts of the British national savings movement, the sort of hierarchical, top-down campaign organization, reached down to villages and local savings associations. And the Japanese in the 1920s, and and then in their war with China and then the United States and others, uh, used basically a British system of national savings mobilization, now, what I want to do now, really for the next of the, the rest of the talk, is to turn to you know how savings campaigns actually looked uh, to people uh, in these various countries, what sort of appeals were made, but also how each one of the countries that engaged in this savings mobilization were actually quite self consciously looking at what other countries, particularly rivals, were doing to mobilize their people. Uh, And so I've really organized this into some themes. Uh, The first period is really this period of World War I, 1930s, and World War II, uh, to show you how the themes were uh, remarkably similar from society to society and it wasn't an accident. They knew what each other was doing. Um, Now one of the appeals that was made by these campaigns by uh, the period of World War I in the 1920s was to actually single out women as the prime target for saving. Uh, This was not necessarily obvious in the 19th century, but there was a feeling certainly in the Anglo-American societies by 1910s, 1920s, that women were basically the managers of the household, the housewives, the managers of finance. And so in 1918, typical poster aimed at women. Uh, This one from Britain, Joan of Arc save France. Women of Britain save your country by war saving certificates. That's uh, Britain, United States. Okay, Joan of Arc save France. (laughs) Women of America save your country. Um, uh, Sort of a nicer Hollywood version than the British, perhaps. Um, But uh, these are no accidents. Propaganda agencies in both uh, Britain and the United States uh, were actively cooperating. They knew what each other was doing. Uh, they were borrowing, and certainly the Americans from the British. Now, the only country that didn't seem to use Joan of Arc was France. <laughs> uh, and, but they used Marianne, uh, who is, is probably much more convenient. Um, but again, this sort of appeal to the woman on the home front as the saver. And from this, you know, we get also a nice image from the United States of there being a real demarcation in how men and women participate in the nation state. And so the idea of that women now become active citizens, of course, I mean, this is right around the time of suffrage, but they become active citizens. The men may fight, but the women can buy the bonds. They can be the savers. They can be the managers of the home front. Well, in Japan, all of this lags a little bit. Around 1900 or the 19th century, very few Japanese would see uh, women or some notion of housewife as even existing. Uh, it was usually men and patriarchs who had control of household finances. But by the 1920s, the Japanese, having actively studied World War I mobilization, particularly in Britain, uh, began uh, targeting women. Uh, as and, and this, this grows and grows, and in the post war period um, women are about the only targets of, of savings campaigns because they are seen as the purse people who control the purse strings and the finances. but this from the mid 20s and you 'll see a lot of images like this um, as we move into the the period of war, the late 1930 s the war with china, uh, you have very large-scale women's patriotic associations in every community of Japan, Uh, and these women who are basically the only adults left in the home front are the people who mobilize at home and who actually go knocking from door to door, uh, collecting saving. Uh, savings from individuals depositing in their accounts, but basically in accounts that go to the postal savings system that go into the buying of war bonds for the war effort. Uh, and of course the idea is to eliminate waste. Now is this a Japanese idea? Well it's an idea that all of the belligerents are, are into at the time. The elimination of waste is a big part of mobilization. Uh, The Americans maybe pay more lip service to most than most, but in most other countries Eliminating waste is a very huge part of war efforts. So this is one of my favorites from Britain uh, But the squander bug and you can read it all um, But you know you'll notice at the end uh, Also wanted uh, for the crime of shoppers disease. I mean there are very strong and am I in your way over here? Okay Uh, Is it okay? Okay Um, so a very strong anti-consumption measure here. And again, uh, it, Japanese don't look at all suce- uh, exceptional in this respect. I mean, this is part of the total war uh, mechanisms and mobilization that come out of the two world wars. Um, well, um, there are also, you know, women on the home front and women being very intrusive agents at the local level to knock on doors and collect saving. Well, this is certainly the story of wartime Japan. But it's also the story of wartime Britain, World War II, and even after World War II in Britain. You'll see this is 1946. Um, a fairly gentle image of a sa- uh, what is called a savings worker, a woman, uh, usually sort of a middle-class, middle-aged matron who goes around and knocks on doors. Uh, everybody seems to greet her warmly, but they would not have greeted her warmly in real life. Uh, this is a real busybody. This is a neighborhood of busybody who went around and shook people down, basically, to correct, collect for national savings. Um, well... Uh, Wartime savings associations in Japan, very intrusive, but you have these savings associations in wartime Britain as well. You know, quoting again from Churchill's famous speech about fighting in the streets, a street savings group in Britain was what we would call in Japanese a Tananigumi, a neighborhood savings association. Uh, again, the British were as highly mobilized and regimented as the Japanese, maybe even more. Um, Another theme in a lot of these, these wartime savings campaigns, World War I and II, was that of national or social integration. Now, you weren't just mobilizing people to get their money, but you were actually using the savings appeal as a way of mobilizing energies on the home front uh, and even in, in the trenches uh, for uh, the national effort. And so national inclusion, national integration was very big. Uh, the Americans, you know, making one of their first attempts at multiculturalism, 1917, the Liberty Loan, uh, the wartime savings in America, uh, made a big effort at... And appealing to ethnic groups, going through ethnic savings banks, going to ethnic neighborhoods. And so, you know, you get the beginnings of what we now know as a sort of a Hollywood movie of, you know, everybody's got a different ethnic surname and they're all Americans and that sort of thing. Um, But you see this in the other countries as well. A lot of appeals to those who had not necessarily been included, working classes in particular. World War II in Britain, uh, World War II in Japan, it's basically the same image, the idea of these workers who are unionized, somewhat alienated, and yet are earning a fair amount of money in war industries. You've got to tap their saving, but you also got to tap, tap their loyalty. Now, another theme that comes out in a lot of these campaigns is the idea that you're not just nation building, but you're character building as well. Uh, really a, a continuation of, of 19th century, quote unquote, Victorian themes sort of good for your character as well as good for the nation. Uh, This is a particularly stodgy image from from Britain, the National Savings Committee in 1935, much better image from Japan. Um, Japanese really got into Aesop's fables, okay? Uh, This is in the Meiji period, late 19th century. Aesop's fables became a major part of moral education in Japanese schools, and they loved the fable of the ant and the grasshopper, which if you don't recall it, since we're Americans, maybe you don't recall it, but uh, it's about, you know, the uh, there's an ant and a grasshopper, the ant is diligently saving up for the winter, the grasshopper's been dancing and playing around all summer, he comes begging for food and the ant says, get lost, you know, I saved and you didn't. And the Japanese not surprisingly identify with the ant in the story, not the grasshopper. So this is, uh, you see a lot of ants in posters Ant Climbing Mount Fuji, you know, talking about basically step by step, Fuji is attained. And then if you save a little coin called a Rin, Rin by Rin, wealth is gained. And it talks about, you know, if you you save up diligently like that ant, but it's also got the national symbol of Japan, Mount Fuji. Um, Other theme is savings as a weapon, a a weapon for national strength. Japanese are big on using statistics to show how far down they are and the need to catch up with the West. Here, a bar graph on the right of basically national wealth. Americans way on the top, followed by the British, um, the French, uh, the Germans, the Italians, and finally the Japanese at about one-fourteenth the level. The inscription is uh, diligence and thrift is number one. In other words, we've got to use our human resources, because we don't have many natural resources. We've got to use our human resources if we're going to catch up uh, with the big players, the other the other powers. Uh, the idea of, of saving as a form of economic warfare from the mid-20s here, it sort of evokes the Russo-Japanese War. On your uh, right here, you have um, basically black ships that kind of look like the Russian ships of 1905. Uh, they're bringing in high prices, uh, luxuries, uh, too many imports, and you've got a fire on them with your... Uh, these ensigns are on the Japanese ship, are, are diligence or hard work, frugality, and saving. That's how you're going to defeat them. Now, if you think it's only the Japanese who are into this game of using saving as a measure of national power and national wealth, uh, this is something that, in an age of national efficiency from roughly 1900 through World War I, this is a big thing, the Europeans were looking at each other and saying, how do we measure ourselves? And one of the ways they measured themselves was how much savings they had. This is a French poster uh, from around 1905, uh, showing that uh, the French uh, per, per inhabitant uh, don't save that much um, um, others, particularly the Germans, with a lot more population, save a lot more. United States and others, but particularly the Germans, I think, is what they're worried about. But So it's not just the Japanese are doing this. Savings as a weapon. World War II, of course, very important to the Japanese. Let's save. Let's win. Uh, it's unfortunately a fairly realistic map turned upside down of uh, East and then Southeast Asia with the Japanese soldier marauding over it. A cartoon from 1943. Very typical, uh, just talking to Maureen about this this morning, a lot of cartoons, caricature, Japanese cartoons caricatured uh, uh, the defeat of Roosevelt and Churchill. In this case, this is a savings bank, a caricatured savings bank, like a piggy bank, uh, and it's got the national savings target. In other words, if you save, you, know, you can defeat the, the Anglo-American powers. Uh, Again, hardly Japan, uh, not the only ones that use this idea of savings as a weapon. This is an early, post-war, uh, early wartime World War II poster. For Britain, uh, the British clearly were not doing very well. Uh, they are the ones who are getting bombed and strafed here, uh, but very patriotic, saving for that. And then Britain a little more confident by 1942, uh, where at least this time they're shooting down the planes uh, rather than the other way around. Uh, but um, hit back with your savings more savings means more guns another theme that comes across in all of these savings campaigns is that it's not enough to simply appeal to people's patriotism you have to also say that saving can be good for you too, that it's good for the individual and this is an attempt to in Japan in the 1920s to tap into a more urban culture where quality of life was beginning to mean something, where having a decent consumer life was meant something so that the saving was not just for sacrifice, but it was for prudent financial planning, for improving one's daily life. And so that's what he's written on the board. Uh, it's good for me, savings good for me, and it's good for the country. Well, this is Britain, 1948 for your own and your country's sake. safe. it's not as nice a poster, but it's the same words. Okay. Um, so, th- you know, there are just there are not that many ways of doing it, and it's interesting that they were doing it in similar ways. Uh, a lot of the British posters toward the end of World War II, when things were looking a little better, was the idea that you weren't just saving for sacrifice and saving for the brave, but that uh, life might someday get better. Uh, they were actually wrong about that, but, uh, being British and all. But um, that, but uh, at least there was this dream that if you saved up and saved up and saved up, someday, you know, you too could buy a hand lawnmower, I guess. Um, I'm not British, so I don't understand these things. But, uh, but anyway, this idea of deferred consumption uh, through saving. Um, another interesting theme was saving for empire, uh, that by saving, you were doing two things for the empire. Uh, you were saving so that you were giving your country power, obviously, to occupy and colonize other peoples. But also there was an idea that you were also going to teach the colonial subjects themselves how to be civilized, how to be thrifty and hardworking people. This is the, these, these blocks are actually uh, numbers in Japan. Uh, it's 10 billion in saving. It was a national savings target. The image of Japan is a very modern one—the modern industrial worker, the crane, even the way the blocks are, very modernist. But in the background, what you're civilizing are the Chinese, the Forbidden City, a Korean pagoda. So it's very much emphasizing both the civilization and the imperialistic aspects, hardly just the Japan. Uh, Japanese, a particularly offensive uh, picture, but uh, from uh, Mussolini's Italy in uh, 1936. Uh, no, nope, the, the the savings bank is the same as the Japanese, and I wish I knew more about this. That's kind of interesting, but more important than that, uh, of course, this follows the invasion of Ethiopia, uh, the idea of civilizing um, African peoples and so-called backward peoples uh, by getting them to save as you do. So it's just interesting how it's a measure of civilization. Well, um, I wanna move very quickly into what happens after World War II. Uh, The Japanese, of course, get soundly defeated. Uh, The Americans come in and occupy them from 1945 to 1952. The Americans come in with an agenda to democratize Japan and to remove the autocratic and authoritarian mechanisms of wartime Japanese mobilization. However, the Americans soon find, uh, unlike Iraq, that they really don't want to pay for anything. They don't want to pay for the reconstruction of Japan. So the Americans basically become complicit in allowing the Japanese savings campaigns to continue as if the war were still on, except now they're post-war campaigns to rebuild Japan because nobody else is going to pay for it. So continued austerity and sacrifice and savings are very important. The mechanisms of the savings campaigns continue. Uh, The original um, post-war campaigns had the very emotive title of National Salvation Savings Campaigns. They ran for four years until 1949. Uh, this is one picture, an appeal to, again, a Japanese woman. Not quite a housewife, but, but getting there, you're going to see more and more. Um, this is a particularly interesting poster from 1952, Basically, the day or the week that the U.S. occupation ends in Japan. Why is that significant? Well, first of all, it's talking about to commemorate the peace, the peace treaty of 1951. But it's saying the image that's conveyed is very interesting because during the U.S. occupation, the American authorities would not allow the portrayal of Mount Fuji. Uh, It was seen as a symbol of Japanese, not only Japanese nationalism, but Japanese ultra-nationalism. So it was barred. So this is interesting. It's basically the week the occupation ends, Mount Fuji goes back up on Japanese posters, uh, except there are no more marauding soldiers with bayonets. Instead, you slap a dove onto Mount Fuji. What's interesting about it is the... And uh, the, the end of national savings has changed. You're no longer saving for military power. Now you're saving for a peacetime economic Japan. But the means, the campaigns themselves, continue really without a serious change. So that it may no longer be for military, it may be peacetime, but Mount Fuji, the focus on the nation, the focus on national mobilization, and the actual mechanisms for going right down to the grassroots level and mobilizing national savings have not changed. And I think I think that really is shown in this case. Well, are the Japanese unique in the post-war period in being so single-minded in cultivating austerity and saving? No. I mean, as you can see... Um, as Japanese pointed, officials pointed out in the late 40s, uh, that basically the whole world didn't matter, they said, whether you won or lost World War II, with the exception of the United States. Uh-oh, what I forgot that. Uh, bear with me for a minute. If I don't put my power source in I'm I'll lose it. Okay. officials pointed out that basically, once again, they were emulating best practice in the Western world. That the nations that were going to be competing again with trade, particularly the British and others, were all mobilizing saving. The communists in Eastern Europe and in Russia, the Soviet Union, were mobilizing saving. Everybody was into austerity except, of course, the Americans, but the Japanese were not comparing themselves with the Americans for obvious reasons. So lots of uh, saving for reconstruction in France. Marianne's back. Um, reconstruction uh, in an Italy, um, also late 40s. Similarly, you get this image on the left of, of, you know, war destruction, the necessity to save past books in the shape of the house uh, in Britain as well. Um, now, the British in particular uh, were quite... Uh, again, as they had in in pre-war decades, provided the leading model for the Japanese. The national savings movement was enormous in Britain in the the late 40s and 1950s. Britain was a very austere place to be between 1945 and 1960. As the Japanese pointed out, uh, the British were actually more austere than the Japanese because they rationed bread until 1955 and the Japanese felt sort of superior. But on the other hand, they were worried that British were out-frugaling them,
2: basically, (laughs) and they
1: talked about, we're going to lose, look at the British, they would say, they wear shabby clothes, they have terrible food, they're ratcheting themselves, they're great. I mean, if we don't do that, we're going to fall behind, and the British are going to compete on the stage of world trade more than we are. The British theme, 1944 on, as the British were assured of victory, was the theme of, keep. oops, I missed one of them, but. Uh, but keep on saving theme here uh, this is from the summer of 1945 Uh, see the Japanese soldier he hasn't been defeated yet but the Germans have but what's interesting here is the British welfare state is starting to form so housing, health and the point was that people on the left in Britain and in Europe people on the left were actually more inclined towards saving and austerity than people on the right uh, because a lot of it was the socialization of consumption, getting people not to consume in their private lives, instead to fork it over in terms of taxes, but also in terms of national saving, so you could fund this sort of socialized, equitable consumption and services by the new welfare state. Now, it's also clear that in the post-war period, the Japanese put a lot of premium on seeing themselves as a small island nation that had, was weak in natu- natural resources and therefore had to export uh, in order to, uh, to prevent unfavorable balances of trade, which they did face. And savings became an important part of this. Again, something that the left and the right could agree on in Japan. What happens to your saving in this 1963 poster? Well, you put it in, you take it to your financial institution, The centerpiece is Japanese industry. That's what's really going on. A little bit goes off to the government. A little bit even goes down to the department store. You can have a little bit of consumption. That's okay. But where it really goes to is it competes with this rather sinister-looking character standing right in the top right corner there, uh, who suspiciously seems to be standing in California. It's marked foreign country. Uh, He's basically your 1930s-style Western plutocrat guy straight off the monopoly board and what he is doing that's so sinister is he is sending his ships off with his products, foreign products, going into Japan and only by saving, patriotically, can you fuel this industrial machine that will send more stuff off to him than that sinister character can send to you. So it's a very strategic, very economically nationalistic way of doing it. Now. Are the Japanese unique in doing this? Well, no, the British also. Same period, 1960 or so, a lot of school savings programs, you know, talking about how important saving is for the recovery and the growth of Britain. Um, Is Japan unique in seeing itself as a small island nation unique? Or, I mean, weak in natural resources? This is the message in, in 1950s Britain. And small island nation is a phrase I found several times and I had to remind myself I was looking at British documents and not Japanese documents. Export and thrive. Uh, If you consume, you are consuming products that we British could have sent overseas. If you consume, you are not saving for British industry, which has to make industrial products. Uh, Another theme in the post-war period is the sort of the modernization of gender roles, the creation of a modern Japanese housewife who's totally in charge of uh, the finances of the family, Um, a very almost American image, but rather than an image of consumption, she's holding a savings passbook, and she's talking about really having a budgeted family finance plan uh, so that you can save more and do things in the time. It's called the rationalization of daily life. Uh, and uh, the need for economizing. Uh, Well, that's Japan. Here's Britain, roughly the same period. Wise budgeting, British housewife, she's got her personal budget. Uh, These things are very interconnected. Uh, They're all aware of of the use of of women and the use of the housewife. Uh, An interesting theme in Japan as well, and one that we still hear today, is the concept of balance. That some consumption is OK, but it must be balanced against other needs, particularly savings. So you have to have a balance in your life, a balance between saving and consumption. You see this in 1955. Uh, this is, again, not a very exceptional um, theme because it turns out this was just ripped off. <laughs> OK, <laughs> it was ripped off from the British post Office the savings bank and trustees savings banks, both of which were government managed. Um, I always liked the Japanese posters better, but, um, but anyway, this one starts as early as 1950. Uh, Japanese post office people, very international, went to international postal conferences. They collected all this stuff. They knew what was going on. Well. Okay, Uh, we've gone on a long time, and I shouldn't do this as an American, but I've reduced my country's experience to several bullets, which actually the way things are going is probably the way people in our government do as well. But um, I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, But why why is America exceptional? Uh, and, And I can't spend any time on this, but one is it does have savings banks, and it does have movements for thrift, and it does have moral education in the 19th century, but it's much less systematic. And there are whole regions in the country that really don't have access to savings banks and financial institutions for small savings, particularly in the American South and the West. That's one thing that's different. Another really glaring difference is America is one of the very few uh, advanced countries uh, that does not have a significant postal savings system. In other words, it doesn't have... The central state at an early point involved in the active mobilization of small saving. To be sure, in 1870, um, officials in uh, the U.S. Post Office like all good officials around the world at the time, said, hey, the British have come up with this really interesting institution of post office savings. Um, We should institute that here in America, particularly because we've got post offices everywhere, but we don't have savings banks in large chunks of the country. Wouldn't this be great? Well, they were the only ones who thought it was great. The commercial banks, which are much stronger in America than they were elsewhere, vigorously contested this. Uh, Local politicians, populists, and others thought that this was a way of draining off um, money uh, from uh, states in the the Midwest and the South and other places, draining it off and sending it basically to Washington or to New York financiers who would use it any way they wanted, in an English or a French way. Um, It was often the claim. Uh, Well, whatever the reasons, for 40 years, federal officials kept introducing these bills for post office savings. And in Every case, they were defeated until finally in 1910, they came up with a version that was so tepid, it finally passed. Um, the system was used by immigrants. It was used by farmers. Uh, but it died a, a death sometime in the early 60s. And even those of you who can remember it can probably only barely remember it. It died with a whimper. Uh, so, it, again, very different mechanism for mobilizing and saving. World War I. Even when Woodrow Wilson mounts his his thrift campaigns, uh, in the first year in 1917, there's remarkably strong opposition from businesses. Um, With uh, the interesting uh, uh, thesis, one that resonates today, that consumption is actually better than thrift for the national economy, that it was a circulation thesis, it was better to have money circulating. Uh, that money beget money was the slogan often put up. Thomas Edison wrote an editorial say in the New York Times saying it was much more important to encourage spending and consumption. It's the only country I found like this. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence. Um, World War Two, of course, you do have savings campaigns. But after 1945, as the American historians here know, uh, you had. New politics of abundance, things that Elizabeth Cohn has talked about in her book, Consumer Republic, and others. Uh, The emphasis more and more has been on home buying, home mortgage deduction, uh, buying stuff as as really an important part of not only the American economy, but the American polity uh, in all sorts of ways. And I'm not going to go into, but we can talk about it. And then finally, consumer credit in America. Looks like consumer credit nowhere else. Even by the 1920s, the Americans were into installment buying in a way that nobody else was. The 1950s in a big way, and then after 1980, the proliferation of the universal credit card, which just put spending on a new level. And it's interesting that most countries, at least the most well-run countries in the world, have many more restrictions on consumer credit in all sorts of ways than we do. Well, let me just round out the talk, and I've gone on a long time by saying, well, what's happened since about the 1960s? Well, um, let's see, ignore that for a minute. Uh, Well, the Europeans, in a sense, uh, have been somewhat Americanized. Uh, There were consumer revolutions and much more choice from the late 50s on in places like Germany, Britain, France. Uh also, the act of promotion in most European societies uh, really radically declined in the 60s and 70s. The British got rid of the National Savings Movement in 1978 uh, with tremendous heaps of criticism on it as being antiquated, ineffectual, and just not the sort of thing that a liberal economy should have. Uh, and this was a pattern in other places as well. But what about Japan? Well, the Japanese kept going. Uh, whereas the Europeans sort of shied away from the active savings promotion, the Japanese kept going with savings campaigns and saving promotion until the 1990s, and even then it's been somewhat muted in some ways. What's interesting about the Japanese experience is in one last outburst of transnational diffusion, it was the Japanese who in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s began to provide the model for savings promotion and economic development in many other places in the rest of Asia, East Asia, Southeast Asia. The South Korean government, this is from South Korea, um, mounted very active Japanese-style savings campaigns. Uh, from the late 60s on, um, mounted things called frugality campaigns against excessive consumption. Uh, in places like Singapore, uh, compulsory savings was set up, also postal savings. Uh, and what's interesting about all this is, is nowadays all of this is held up as an Asian value. Asians are very thrifty people, Westerners are decadent and spendthrift. But, you know, I, I went back to our Australian school children. Um, You know, what are all these things? Well, they're a hodgepodge. They don't simply come out of some uh, essential Confucian culture. They're mixed up in all sorts of interesting ways. And it sort of ends here with the Singapore, Singaporean children, 1970s, lined up. Well, Lee Kuan Yew, the former prime minister of Singapore says that's because they're Confucian. But maybe they were a British colony. Maybe they were occupied by the Japanese in World War II. Maybe they looked at Japanese economic miracle. I mean, all these things aren't maybe. They actually happened. <laughs> um,
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well,
1: um, anyway, I will will stop at this point and uh, open it up for questions. I am sorry to go on. Uh, please. Okay, back there. You spoke a little about
3: international barriers, except for the American For example, the Singaporean case. Yes. The government had a compulsory setting.
1: Yes. That's right.
3: What about other countries, European countries?
1: Okay. Um, Singapore is pretty exceptional in having a compulsory system, which, interestingly enough, has just broken into the American news because it is your you know, your case par excellence of, uh, of you know, supposedly privatized saving that's managed by the state. Uh, Singapore... Uh, At one point, up to 25% of a worker's wages were deducted and put into uh, his or her compulsory saving account, but also 25% from the employer. Uh, Now, Chile also has something like that, but Singapore came first. Um, This was not the pattern in the European countries, but Singapore also has a voluntary saving system, uh, postal savings, which is also very effective. The Europeans and the Japanese used voluntary saving, although at times it looked pretty compulsory, particularly during the World Wars. Does that answer that? Okay. And then you had your hand up, too. I was curious if you had any thoughts about the connection between the
2: development uh, yeah. of the welfare states Yes. Indeed, it the curious, yes. More to get if, if they have less welfare. Or something like that. Yeah. But I mean, it, just, it
1: I Okay. The connection, the textbook answer to this is that when you have a welfare state, people's savings obviously are going to go down because they don't have to save as much anymore because, uh, you know, you have Social Security or National Pension. It's been done. The reason I, I, I started off by showing the Europeans uh, today is, uh, you know, places like... Uh, We'll go back to that, that original slide. Places like Germany and France and even Italy um, are places with strong welfare states. And yet they have savings that are as good as the, certainly they're actually as good as the Koreans right now. And the Koreans don't have a very strong welfare state. And the Japanese have sort of a median welfare state. The Americans, of course, do have a highly developed plan of Social Security. So American economists have always told us, based on the American example only, that a Social Security or national pension system should sink the personal savings rate. So it sinks, and then they say, ah, okay, now we understand why. But if they got on the plane and went to Germany, they would have a tougher time explaining this. So it, it is interesting. There are all sorts of other things going on. I'm deconstructing. I'm not giving you... I'm not... I haven't come up with a new model. I'm just saying maybe the welfare state is not as important as people have said in terms of submerging personal saving. Uh, yeah, David. One yeah. What, what comment and one question. Where yeah. The comment is, the
2: American experience with the world Wars is so different. The world yeah. Wars would the United States. And uh-huh. The other. Excellent obviously one reason why even after the crash, Right. So insane, exactly. And then my question is, you sort of went past home after, You sort of went oh, past home buying. Oh, yeah, it went past after, everything in America. Well, yeah. after World War II, buying a house, or at least a yes. mortgage, becomes a majoritarian experience yes. here Yes. And one definition, you can think of that as savings. In other words, it's in the, the past, you don't have anything. Right. So is the American savings rate really substantially higher uh-huh. since World War II
1: because Americans are so much more likely to pay mortgages? Yes. I, I mean, it's a great question. Did you all hear it? Okay. Um, and and I, I, there's a lot to it. I mean, because, I mean, as any economist will tell you, there's more to saving than simply the savings rate. Okay. There is the question of assets and asset appreciation. And in this case... You could say that the American case has really been quite successful in terms of building up assets and doing it in, in a different way.
2: And so, if that's the case, are we exceptional but far less than those numbers would suggest over the past 50 years? In other words, we're sort of at the lower end of the range of savings, perhaps. Yeah. But once you factor in the two world wars and rich us, yes. the poverty everything right. else. Yeah. And that we do so much savings through the whole yeah. time. Yeah that we're not really all that different. Yeah. Well, we are different. We're different for the, the reasons overall, you just said. It, but in terms of the overall result, in terms of
1: how many assets well, we have for later in life. Yeah. I mean I think you could make that statement until the last few years. But what has been so interesting, and I think I think the credit card is part of this and also the unevenness of house uh, appreciation of household prices uh, house prices you know, which can be striking in some places and can be just awful in other places. Uh, so it's sometimes an unreliable asset and certainly the stock market for, you know, it's the other way of asset appreciation that can go up and go down. Um, but what has been interesting in the last few years is, is how with, I think, the universal credit card, spending has really be- become very disassociated from income and, and, and it's really spent down assets And a lot in lower income households, which don't have the asset appreciation, where people don't necessarily own homes, I mean, there's been a looming crisis. So I think one could say that, you know, up to the mid-1990s, you know, it would actually be pretty stodgy to talk about how other people save and we don't uh, for just the reasons you said. But now I think we have a real problem, and I think it has a history to it. Um, Yes, uh, does somebody want to come in right on that point? No? Okay. Is there any case of uh, Japanese emulation
2: of German uh, propaganda style? Yeah. Uh, Your example came from uh, just Japanese emulation uh, British British style. I want to know if uh, Japanese uh, deliberately talk to British style. Yes. If it is is true, why?
1: Yes. Your question is an interesting one because everybody wants to know why I don't talk about the Japanese learning everything from Germany. And and I guess my question back to everybody is why does everybody want to know that? Uh, because I don't think it's a particularly good parallel for all sorts of reasons. First of all, Germany is fairly exceptional in continental Europe in not having a unitary centralized state. Okay, It's a federation, and that's except for the Hitler period. And that's very important because... While the Japanese learned lots of things about philosophy and medicine and science, as Professor Bartholomew can tell you, from the Germans, uh, when it came to actual government um, apparatus, people like the French were much more useful. They had a centralized bureaucratic and financial structure, and the British, surprisingly, also had a very centralized financial structure. Um, so, that one, fa- and in terms of mobilizations, as I said, World War I, you know, bear in mind, was Germany gonna be the successful case for the Japanese after nineteen eighteen of the mobilizing state? No. You know, they lost. And, and, and also the British were the, the allies of the Japanese and the Japanese fought on the side of the Entente. So for all sorts of reasons, and particularly the post war period where you know Germany really sort of drops off as a major cultural influence. Uh, we actually need to look much more at Anglo-French, you know, even Belgian uh, examples. Uh, then I think the single-minded focus on the Germans comes, if I could answer the question for you, that they're the axis of evil. <laughs> so <laughs> so people want to say that and every, I of a lot of colleagues who really want to say everything Japan learned everything from Germany. And, I, and I, I'm actually trying to really subvert that. Uh, let's, yeah. Um, I forgot your name. Al, oh, so oh, yeah. I'm, okay. I'm
2: just curious. Um, uh, you're talking about trying uh, to instill this notion of thrift or saving, but at least one reading of what's happened in Japan over the last several, uh, of many years you want to see a bubble of the discussion is that you're trying to break yeah. this idea. So I'm wondering if, in, in a new set of posters, as it were, yeah. would you see an effort to try and remind people, hey, it's good to spend money?
1: Too. Yeah. Yeah, great question. Um, there were noises about that in the late 1990s. There was a, there were a few campaigns, if you even want to call them that, to get people to spend money. One of the opposition parties at the time uh, came up with the idea of uh, basically consumption vouchers. You give every citizen you know, maybe a 10 or $20 coupon, but it could only be spent, all that sort of thing. There were a lot of gimmicks, but the reason you don't see a bigger campaign is... One, old ideas die hard, but also there are are factors that Japanese officials and Japanese housewives magazines will point to. First of all, the 1990s and the present uh, uh, 2000s have been a time of economic stagnation. And people are scared, and people are seeing their incomes decline. Uh, So there's a reluctance on the part of the government to tell people to spend down their assets when things are bad. But there's also something else. Japan, like a lot of European countries, uh, has a very rapidly aging society. The Japanese like to think they're sort of unique in this, but and they may have maybe a little more rapid. But basically, it's the same problem. You know, people getting older, people healthier, very low birth rates. It's very hard for government officials to get in their minds that consumption is the thing that people should be doing when they know the national pension system is underfunded, it's in bad shape, uh, that people have got to be more self-reliant. So these mixed messages tend to cancel out. What you know, Some of these guys know, some of them know that Japan needs to consume its way out, but they can't quite get themselves to that as a message for moral suasion because there are these countervailing pressures in their mind, uh, not to mention. The fact that they think that consumption is still somewhat immoral. I mean, that thrift is good. And, you know, they don't have to be Confucian to think that. As I said, this this is sort of the norm 50 or, or 70 or 80 years ago. Although it does
2: seem that China is yeah. much more towards advocating consumption yes. than Japanese.
1: Yes, they are. They are. And that is interesting. Um, and I'm not sure I can totally explain that. Maybe some of the people in China can. But uh, yes, yes. Yes.
3: Well, this was very interesting. You know, in some sense, you know, implicating already what I think is very true that Japanese are not saving very much before the 18th you know, century. The mm-hmm. institutional savings thing was on, as you said. Nothing mm-hmm. I I think happened for things like so many people think very Japanese, like I find them going. All right. Right. So, what's very interesting it seems to be the case. So
1: really get onto this
3: natural policy, so they mm-hmm. don't know how to Yes. The institution's algorithm is useful. Then. I know. And for uh, yeah. well, Japanese, I think consumers are more rational than total saving itself, because as you can see from a table, uh-huh. Japanese are not the same. Yeah. And Charles Holyoke, we can predict the potential to negative in 10 years. Yeah, I did predict and, that about 15 so years, years ago. We're Japanese, still there. Now, the Japanese are really getting into how to dismantle this uh, but yeah. 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 The thing was the last 10 years of political economy. Yes. yes. The they too long in some yeah. sense. So I'm more curious how the yes. they let the institutions out in its Yes. and somehow I feel that government apologists is wrong, like right? postal savings the reason yeah. they want to go for because it's more profitable for the consumer to get higher interest rates right? by going to postal savings yes. and going by the banks. Uh-huh. So those government End things make it longer than you.
1: Yeah, I mean, that is I mean, you're you're entirely right that. um, And it is interesting that the Europeans, you know, from about the 1970s, realized that these postal savings systems were 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 creatures of the late 19th century and that they had to be reformed. And most of them are still there, but they've been highly restructured, liberalized in terms of their investment. Uh, that they're not simply tools of national financial policy anymore. They invest broadly, they invest globally, and it, it it is interesting and fascinating how stuck the Japanese government is on an institution that was created in 1885. You know, this active management of this huge um, uh, pool of saving. And, and for those who don't know it, the Japanese Postal Savings System is still, I think, the biggest bank in the world. I mean, it's a lot of money. And it's still basically being managed with a few little reforms here and there the way it was in 1885. And uh, I, it, I guess only history can provide... But the history doesn't tell us why it stays, and, that, and I agree with you. It's a mystery. Yes, uh, way in the back, you had your hand up.
2: Yeah, I'm interested in uh, what you... What's the connection between inflation and national saving rate? For yeah. example, um,
0: could it be the case that in Germany, France, and Italy, inflation has been significantly higher than Japan, and UK, and US? That's just
2: mean, I'm thinking about. Mm-hmm. And, I don't mm-hmm. and because of that uncertainty
1: in the economy, people tend to stay informed. Well, I mean, the classic economic take on this, which I don't actually agree with, is that in periods of high inflation, people will not save. They will borrow. But, in fact, the historical experience is is much more complex than that. Uh, So I'm not quite sure how to answer your question, except maybe in a more general way about inflation and saving. The the 1970s, when the Japanese achieved their highest rate of uh, household saving, 23%, was also a period, which many of you remember, was a period of hyperinflation in Japan and elsewhere. I think the rates were as much as 30% or 20%. Okay, but very high, and yet they saved high. And I used to think, well, okay, so the Japanese are pretty exceptional. But then I actually looked at all the savings figures, including the United States, and they were also, during that period of stagflation, savings actually goes up in Britain, the United States, France, West Germany, um, for the reasons you just said. I mean, you actually stated it correctly, but you didn't state it the way economists say it, uh, because the correct answer, at least from the 1970s, was that the, the inflation was so high, it introduced uncertainty, and people seemed to have really cut back on their spending. They saw high prices. They didn't know if they were going to be employed, and they saved. Now, it doesn't seem... I think uncertainty is probably more important than whether it's inflation or deflation, but certainly... Um, you know, I mean, it's often said, and I think I agree with this, that if you wanted to look at one factor that was most closely correlated with saving, it was a pessimistic outlook. That when people are pessimistic about the future, they will tend to save. And one could say the thing about Americans, and, you know, this is it's a gross generalization. But we're a sort of a restless nation, a nation that moves around to look for jobs. We don't just stay in one neighborhood. That people have a sense, I mean, American historians have talked about the 19th century spread of the notion of providence, that somehow, you know, things would be provided for you, that there were places you could move to, opportunities to get. And I think Americans remain very optimistic that somehow things are going to take care of themselves um, I mean, that's a sort of gross cultural generalization, but, but it would be an interesting thing to try and comparatively study pessimism. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, over here on this side. Yeah. Uh, I think
2: a big company in Europe is running right now an advertising campaign which uh, in Germany runs
1: under the heading of uh, Guide to Sky. But into uh, English, it's not even thrift, it's actually making it stingy and sexy. Huh. And, um, I don't think anytime soon Walmart will come up with signs in the window saying try to spend as little as you can in the store. Uh, My question then would be um, you gave a lot of examples for uh, American exceptionalism and how other countries handle savings. Would you speculate for a moment why there's an American exceptionalism? Well, I tried to do that that with those silly bullets, but uh, (laughs) 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 well, I mean, I mean, I think there's no one answer, but, but you know, I mean, I, I tried to sketch out as, as schematically as I could. Uh, you know, one is, you know, relatively speaking, the government, governments have not been, U.S. governments have not been essentially involved in systematic savings campaigns. Uh, now there have been, you know, those of us who went to school in the 50s, you know, right after World War II, we had savings campaigns in some of our locales. Those were state by state, locale by locale. Sometimes banks participated, sometimes they didn't. It was very haphazard. I mean, that's one thing. Um, but I think I think the spread of ideas of consumption is a good thing. Uh, I mean, I would just, I guess, I'd historicize it rather than give you one one reason, but. It's interesting, by the 1920s, there's notions of abundance, there's mass advertising, uh, but there's also installment buying, which most countries, as I said, put severe regulations on, you know, what the British call higher purchase and things like that. Um, In Italy, uh, uh, you know, I found that not one Italian car had been sold on credit uh, until 1950. So Detroit booms in the 1920s because of installment buying. It booms in the 1950s. Imagine a place where there's almost no installment buying. Uh, You get much different uh, configurations and outcomes. Uh, I think the credit card has been a big thing, as I said. Uh, Credit cards are severely limited in in most European countries. In Europe, the EU now has an official policy to prevent over-indebtedness, a term that does not exist in English, (laughs) at least American English. (laughs) It's a fascinating concept. It came actually from the plucky Belgians uh, who who pioneered a system in the last uh, few decades of... Anytime somebody was over-indebted, sue indebtement, that at that point, the credit companies had to report his name to the, the National Bank of Belgium, the central bank, uh, which had a social service agency that immediately activated an army of social workers who went to his house uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and straightened him out. And, and the idea of protecting people from from hurting themselves by making stupid decisions is not something we do very well in this country. Um, so I mean there I mean again I'm not actually I guess I'm describing effects more than causes but it's so interesting these differences uh,
2: yeah go, go ahead do you see any particular correlation between the rise of nation saving campaigns
1: and the great Depression what's the case for top of well yeah that's a that's a very interesting question about the relation between national savings and depression I I, I, I don't think I do um, because I mean I first of all whatever system they have I mean the Americans the British the Germans all experience the Great Depression Japanese and so it I don't know if that if that's the, the strongest relation um, I mean after all it was a stock market crash which is very different from national saving uh, so I'm not sure about that
2: yeah David. yeah Answer the point, that yeah, what, it's very different. So the government is not as involved, systematically, yeah, so to get on housing. Yeah, the promotion of the mortgage, yes, yes, yeah. definitely organized in order to on the and Yeah, that's something to use Yeah, office. so if you look at it that yeah. what I was very American about is it Satan's. House yeah, but you're buying an asset. Correct. That's right. And so if there's an American ecosystem yeah. consumption that's
1: bringing elsewhere, what our system is to yeah. use it to promote safety. Right. And, and housing is an interesting case because, as you say, you're not sure whether it, it is a consumption or an asset. It's an asset in the sense that it can appreciate, but also by having houses that people own and also uh, the American way has been in the post-war period buying bigger and bigger houses, you have to fill space with stuff. And, you know, one of my friends, an economic historian, said, you know, it may just come down to the fact that Japanese and Europeans live in small spaces and they really can't put that much stuff in <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, over here.
2: Yeah. Uh, but, but there's also the you know your, your, your Japanese example, you know, save money so that we can export so we can beat the bad class. You necessarily have to help you we are not an exporting economy. Well, okay. not self conscious. The main trust of the yeah. American economy is the domestic market. Uh-huh. And and therefore, you know, prosperity depends on war. It doesn't depend on Yeah. It. I mean it no longer depends on Detroit, as yeah. a matter of fact. Yes. It depends on, on a national market yeah. thriving and flourishing. And of yeah. course the great fear is that at the end of the national producing market is going to be wiped up. But in a way yeah. that doesn't matter because the people who own Walmart and all of these other markets are going to flourish and somehow eat yeah. So I mean, I mean the that, exception. That yes. I think it has something you to do with the size and the
1: scale of our Yes. Yes. I mean, precisely, and it's you bring up really a very interesting point that what has happened in the course of the post-war period in this country is that consumption has gotten separated from domestic production. In the 1950s, I mean, if you read Elizabeth Cohn's book, *Consumer Republic*, it's very clear that consumption was being promoted as something that gave Americans jobs. And in the 1950s, that was unquestionably true because, um, you know, the Americans were just by far the largest economy in the world. They were producing everything. They weren't really buying much in the 1950s from the outside because not much was being made outside. So it actually made sense as a, as a social policy was something labor unions could buy into. Everybody could buy into consumption meant jobs. And, and that was very explicitly stated. What's happened with the Walmart phenomenon over the decades is, of course, we've become a vast importing economy and yet the, the rhetoric of consumption has continued to the point that consumption by itself, no matter where the stuff is made, is now seen as the positive feature. And we just talk about consumption as two-thirds of the American economy, and we don't, we're not really concerned where it's made. And, and it's really interesting because in most other countries, at least until quite recently, that identification has been much stronger. Uh, back there, please. Uh, yes, yes. yes, yes, please. Your
2: uh, research is really compelling, but there's just one one thing you mentioned that um, I'm not surprised by, it, but it may not exist. Um, in Britain, America, in the first decades of the 20th century through World War One, there's this popular movement against domesticating the meat from abroad, especially Latin American hmm. Africa. And I was kind of surprised by that when I saw your time poster. Savings bank and Empire building sector. Oh yeah. And I was wondering if you found any propaganda that, that, that supports the idea of you know, stopping foreign uh, foreign saving. I don't
1: know how you wanted to touch it, but domestic saving things in the broad yeah. It? That's very good. Uh, you know, I have I have not thought seriously about that. Uh, partly because of what I've, I've you know I've, I've tended to focus on national savings, or sort of government sponsored and. And that stuff, for the most part, could not be sent abroad. There were some exceptions. You know, you might, if you were in the Belgian, uh, the Cassa Generale, their, their big uh, national savings bank. You might invest in, in 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 neighboring European countries, very secure bonds. But but you were doing that for your own people. You weren't doing it to to invest abroad. However. Um, these national saving systems, as I suggested, did invest in their own empires, including the British system. I mean, would invest in India and other places for infrastructure. The Japanese sent a lot of their money into their empire: uh, Korea, China, Southeast Asia. What?
2: Hawaii.
1: <laughs> well, not in that period. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that wasn't. Yeah, but but anyway, but but I, I see your point. I, and and there must be a discussion of that. Maybe you, you you have to come up afterwards and tell me what you know, because I really don't know much about this place. Uh Actually,
3: there is one big uh, theorem in economics for the of the You know, the savings actually is actually terrible for the macroeconomic. Right, so, uh, right. So the U.S. has been remarkable in its own way of pulling not just the rest of the world, but yeah. the rest of the world by yeah. consumer confidence in spending. Yes. So it's uh, peculiar in America, but it's yeah. also a yeah. Uh, in this, Yes, yes, I mean, <laughs> yes. If I what
1: yes, they do. saving, right? US yes, yes, yes. No, that's right. Um, yeah, and, and also uh, the so called oversaving by the Japanese was seen as one of the causes of the 1997 financial crisis in Southeast Asia, wasn't it? And yeah. yeah, so so it, it, it certainly does have global implications. Um, yes, please. Um, you mentioned
2: something kind of earlier about how women were sort of targeted as yeah. the ones who were to be the savers in all these countries. Yeah. But I was wondering if you found any rationale for that, because I remember reading something about the personality. That women in the countries of the mother's were the ones who were given a lot of the aid money because the men were felt to be just spending it on alcohol and anything, just wasting the money. Yeah. The women would actually use it for supporting the family, buying food, trying to rebuild their house. Yeah,
1: I had not seen that story. That's very interesting. Um, This question is is one that. That's very culturally relative because in different societies, women play different roles in the household economy. And and, and just to give you one case of this, uh, something I didn't talk about, but as as part of my research, I went to Southeast Asia and I went to Malaysia, which uh, in uh, the late 1990s was actually self-consciously uh, borrowing Japanese savings campaigns, including Japanese savings account books and books for children and housewives and all sorts of mechanisms directly from the Bank of Japan. But what transpired was they were trying to mass produce these, these household account books for housewives, which are a big thing in Japan and Korea, where you write, to itemize your daily expenses and, uh, you, and you also put how much savings you have left. And it works very well in Japan and Korea. Where, where you have this idea of the housewife as having this almost monopoly on financial management. But what everybody was telling me in the Bank of Malaysia was this, this so far had been a dismal failure because they tried to give all these household account books to Malaysian women, and it turned out the gender configuration was just much different. Uh, that women were not that men Malaysian men were not coming home and giving their salaries or their wages to their wives who then deposited in the bank and then maybe doled out a little drinking money to them the way they do in Japan and Korea Uh, so it didn't make any sense and women were saying "Well, why should I sit around every night doing all these accounts this isn't really my job and and I, I interviewed a a high-ranking official, a woman with a headscarf in the the Ministry of Women's Affairs, and said, oh yeah, they gave me one of those Japanese account books to fill out, and I tried it for two months, and then I just threw it in the rubbish. and and, and I think the point is it is different and and, and if you think about the United States today you know I could ask you for a show of hands but I won't but I mean who in your family is responsible for financial management and I would get all sorts of different answers because I don't think there is any particular American norm anymore it varies and you know people have you know, near fistfights over it. I mean, it's it's very contentious here. So it's not clear if you, you know, somehow the Japanese took over America tomorrow and they tried to impose all of this, who they would get the household account book to. Uh, So I don't think there is one answer, and, and I don't know if they did the right thing in Southeast Asia or not. It's also a very diverse place. A lot of different customs...
0: I don't want to break off the discussion, but we do have a reception outside paid 24 by the history department. So why don't we continue? <laughs> <laughs>